ESPN Audio and SC Featured presents a 16-episode podcast, Pin Kings. It's the story of two All-American high school wrestlers, teammates, and friends who ultimately ended up on the opposite sides of the war on drugs. Pin Kings is for mature audiences. Welcome to Episode 9, Zip 6. What cartels did you guys work with? The cocaine was mostly with the Cali boys. Medellin, too. It was, uh, it depended. You never really knew where it came from. A lot of times, it was just the old man had put the stuff together. And one guy would throw 300, one guy would throw 500. This is David Lemieux, a smuggling partner of Alex DeCubasis. You'd see all this different packaging. One time, I think we had like... 16, 1700 that were all the same package. So we kind of figured it came from uh, Pablo, but didn't know that for a fact. He was one of the only ones that could throw that many together back then. That was the standing joke between everybody. Oh, this has got to be his. Kevin and Alex were best friends. Champion wrestling buddies. The heydays of Miami. Alex DeCubis was clearly a kingpin. It's a, it's a tragic story. The less you know, the more you leave. I wanted to take out the biggest drug dealers. If they were catching him, he's going away for the rest of his life if they don't kill him when they try to capture him. Could you imagine if Kevin has to shoot Alex? He's a sworn federal agent for a drug enforcement agency. Evil goes to jail or evil ends up dead. Welcome to the SC Featured Podcast, Pin Kinks. I'm Brett Forrest, a senior writer at ESPN The Magazine. And I'm John Fish, a producer for ESPN. Okay, so Alex DeCubis has dropped out of college, his father has committed suicide, and he's back in Miami. It's the summer of 1979. He would have been going into his senior year of college. Andrew DeWitt wrestled with Alex in high school and in college, and he helps him out at this point. Well, remember, Andrew had gone through his own ordeal with his father, who had been murdered a few years earlier, so he could sympathize even more so than Alex's other friends. And the DeWitt family, they owned a business. It's called the DeWitt Tool Company. Everybody knew it as DTC. It was located in the Liberty City part of Miami, and they sold industrial-grade tools and machinery. So Andrew sets up Alex with a job there, working behind the counter. He's making about 180 bucks a week. Here's Andrew. He knew those products well, and he liked them. So it was, you know, it was a summertime job. But uh, my family, my cousins who ran the business, liked them, and he spoke Spanish, which was very helpful to have. When he decided to leave college, he asked my cousins if he could have a job, and they gave him a job. Andrew says that Alex decided to leave college, but he never really decided to leave. His junior year, he was 7-3 as a wrestler, 7-3-1. and one. He had an idea to go back to Georgia and finish out, but he just doesn't end up going back. By the time he, he gets to Miami, some other things started to get in the way. He'd already gotten started out at dealing marijuana up at uh, Georgia through his friend Scott Sharouse. But when he's in Miami, he, he kicks things up a notch. He starts dealing, in addition to pot, dealing some cocaine. He's, he's dealing this to friends and acquaintances. Then he buys a beat-up old Porsche. Yeah, it even had a hole in the floorboard. But it looked great. Yeah, it, it, it did. And so he has, he has the car. He, he buys a gun. He's dealing drugs. 
Something, John, something is happening here at Alex. Well, in one day, summer of 1979, while Alex is working behind the counter at DTC Tools, these two guys show up. They're driving a big Mercedes, they're wearing gold Rolexes, and they walk right up to Alex. My name is Yaromir Yon, and I met Alex in Florida approximately 1979. The man was working for DTC Tools, and I was running a jewelry business in Florida and buying all the tools from Alex from DTC. One day I come to the DTC tool and uh, this Cuban guy standing behind a counter and he's a, he's a friendly, intelligent person. I say, hey Alex, uh, what we can do over here in the machine shop business? Uh, you know, we got a lot of coke and uh, you take a line. Oh, oh yeah, I got girlfriend, I will take a line. I say, may you work with me on this uh, machine shop stuff? I can help you out over here with a little bit of coke. So Alex visited me in a factory in Fort Lauderdale. Alex was a poor boy in DTC tools, working eight hours a day. I say, hey man, can we uh, do something? Can you talk to these Cuban boys and maybe we can do some business? That was Yarmir John. People knew him as JJ. In 71, 1971 that is, JJ had fled what was then known as Czechoslovakia. Shortly thereafter, he arrives in New York, about a year later, guy doesn't have a cent to his name, and he's got to hustle to make a living. But he had a skill, because J.J. was a jeweler by trade. And by the time he makes it down to Miami sometime later, he has a small jewelry business going. But on the side, what's he doing? He's dealing cocaine on the side. His partner, Sam Frontera, was from Detroit. He had a lot of street smarts. Sam fancied himself a nightclub guy, a promoter. Together, they make a very forceful pairing. This is Jim Burke of the Boca Raton Police Department. Sam Frontera and German John, JJ, they're characters. Sam Frontera came from Detroit and sort of was like a street thug. Sam basically tried to be come off as a, a nightclub over. Jeremiah John looked like you never would cross him. He was that, he had a little bit of crazy in his eye. And they schmoozed Alex up a little bit and then just, boom, can you get kilos? This is Alex's friend, Scott Schraus. He's the counter guy at the tool place, but he, saw, he knew an opportunity when he saw it, and he's like, yeah, sure I can. You're like, well, it's got to be great, and it's got to be a great price, but if you can do that, we'll do business. So Alex getting on the horn and searching around, and we had a, a good friend, Rick Olson, who was, and back then we considered him huge. He was supplying Mercury Morris. He was supplying, he called me up one time, come over to the house right now. All right, I go over there, and one of the guys in the Rolling Stone is sitting on his couch. So that was cool. And then so Rick hooked him up and he hooked up these guys and and then that was the beginning of a, a long relationship with those those two guys were also crazy. And these two guys, if there was somebody to take Alex to the next level of craziness, this was a match made in heaven. Their specialty was robbing drug dealers. Just to be clear, Mercury Morris, Scott was talking about Mercury Morris. He was on the 1972 Miami Dolphins, the team that went undefeated and, and won the Super Bowl that year. But, John, can we just pause for a moment here? Robbing drug dealers. Robbing drug dealers. Well, it's a 100% profit. It doesn't seem to be something that anyone 
who was completely sane would want to do. Paul Pelletier, the federal prosecutor on this case, explains why robbing drug dealers probably wasn't the smartest idea. Incredibly dangerous, deadly dangerous enterprise. If the Colombians learn that you rip their cocaine, they either want to get paid back, or if they don't get paid back, they want you dead. He would stage rips of other people's cocaine. In other words, he would steal cocaine from other drug dealers after it was imported. Ripping cocaine, your life is in danger. Literally, they will kill you for that. At first, it sounds odd. This is Scott Schirouse again. That's not very honorable or smart or how, what's the longevity in that? Sam had a way of explaining it. He's like, well, you, you do a deal. What do you make, 10%? I'm like, yeah, maybe. Well, you do that deal 10 times, you're going to get 100% of that sales price. You rob the guy once, you get 100%. And you don't go back and back to this guy that might be busted in the meantime or his wife turns him in. So you see where it's really a lot smarter to rob him once and be done with it. Yeah, it does make sense the way you put it. And Alex, always up for adventure, he was the, he was their perfect guy. So Alex hooks up JJ and Sam with a few kilos. And then JJ calls Alex one day after his shift is done at DTC. He tells Alex, meet me in Fort Lauderdale. And he tells him to bring his gun. The first time that they brought Alex into a ripoff, they had some guys with marijuana that had brought up thousands of pounds from the Keys. They were driving a Ryder rental truck and Sam's 6.9 Mercedes, and they, they were armed. You know, their intention was to rob them. Sam went in first to show them some money. Jeremiah pulled the truck around to the garage where they had the pot. And then Alex burst in with a 45 and a, a little, a small house. And they're at the table and he's screaming DEA on the ground. And it's the little tiny living room. When he stepped in, there was a hallway off to his left. As he has the 45 train on these guys, the door opens and two pit bulls come running out. Probably what saved him is the hardwood floor and the, the dogs actually just couldn't get traction. Gave him time to turn on them. Boom, 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 boom. And pretty much killing them, not totally. In the meantime, Sam walks over and finishes off with his 45. Well, everybody's ears are ringing. Jeremiah comes running in. He takes this all in and it's hilarious. That was Alex's first adventure with that. And, and then a lot of people would have been like, if they did it at all to begin with, they would have said, well, that's it for me. And he was like, this is great. What, what could be more fun than, than shooting pit bulls and making good money doing it? So Alex is making near minimum wage at DTC. With Sam and JJ, he would get twenty-five dollars to $35,000 for one rip. I think he was hooked on the adrenaline of it too, John. We know Sam's logic for ripping. But when we interviewed JJ, we asked him why they got involved in something so dangerous. Come on. The Cocaine Cowboys, 79. Why you gotta pay the JoJo money? JoJo is the guy you approach with the kilo of coke, got no balls to hold on to the money. Sam said, why you think they got a, such a big safe and a bank and big vault and all that protection? For the people gonna try to rob the money so they have a protection. Now sitting on a bench with the $50,000, you gonna give them a kilo? So Johnny Apollo come up with this name, uh, JoJo. I said, we need to rob the guy, we go call Butch, and we call Johnny. Butch is a bull rider. 
Bull Rider Breaker, so from Detroit. Come on, it's a top of the notch in the world. Can we stop for a second? We're going to forward spin to the present day. The prison interview we did with JJ was very, very wild. Yeah, so so Jaramir John, he ended up serving 18 years in prison in the Alex DeCubis case, right? He gets out for a few years. He goes to the Czech Republic. Then he goes back to Colombia. The guy gets busted again. This happened about 18 months ago. And he's serving a five-year sentence down at this... Well, you can tell the rest, I guess. From so there. we're in Bogota, Colombia, and we fly with our whole crew into Cali. And then from Cali, we drive to a small town called Palmyra. So we show up at this maximum security prison there. And it looks pretty much like you'd expect a maximum security prison in Colombia to look. Except for the elementary school right next door. Yeah, so, so we go to meet the warden to agree on some ground rules for the interview. The door opens... And the warden of this maximum security hardcore prison in Colombia is a woman. Which wouldn't be so surprising except for the fact that she is in a super tight, very low cut dress. She has tons of jewelry on, big hoop earrings, big medallion of Nefertiti, and she couldn't have been nicer. Not what you're expecting a warden of a maximum security prison outside of Cali, Colombia to look like. Right. I mean, this, this was a tough place because later on we're standing on this balcony and we get a, a look over the wall and into the part of the prison where the uh, inmates are housed. They're playing soccer. There's laundry hanging all over. Barefoot soccer, shirtless soccer. Everybody's on top of each other and they're yelling. It was, it was amazing. Yeah, I just remember this one guy who was, who was stomping all around. He had this huge acid burn running down his face and his neck. And, and he, was just, he was just flexing and screaming. And yeah, I wouldn't last very long in that place. Well, the next day, after we got permission to shoot in the prison from the warden, we're waiting in this room. And they bring J.J. in. He is dressed head to toe in black, and he's all shackled. I mean, he's just—he's got the cuffs on, and they lead him in. And he has absolutely no idea who we are or why we're there. He started speaking Spanish with us. Yeah, and when I told him we wanted to talk about Alex DeCubis, J.J.'s face just lit up. Alex is a wrestler. Alex know every guy. Alex uh, say hello to everybody. Alex smile. Alex get all the girls. Alex is day and night with the people. He's very friendly. He knows everybody. Alex party. Alex plays sports. Alex is on the water. Alex is on the boat. Alex is everywhere. So everybody knows Alex. They open your mouth and get the kilos, man. We got a Jojo. We rob the guy, give you half. So, hey, this guy, he's got two keys. He's a real, real jack. I said, okay. So we got that. Alex keeps ripping with Sam and JJ, and he brings Scott into the mix. But then he gets set up. Alex is in the parking lot outside of a diner in Fort Lauderdale, and he's in the midst of dealing some massive amount of quaaludes to some guy. And a bunch of DEA agents come flying in out of nowhere, and he's busted. And he gets what's called a zip six. Zero to six years, they send him to federal prison at Eglin, which is part of a Air Force complex in the Florida Panhandle. Alex was small time, but he mixed in with a lot of career smugglers because at the time they didn't separate the two. Right. And the prison itself was so lax. They called the place Club Fed. But Alex was uh, his rough and tumble self. 
Uh, he got in a few fights there, and he was he was proving himself among the older guys. And his buddy Al, his buddy Scott Shiraz explains another way that he made inroads in the prison. And they had athletics there also, so obviously he shined. I think it actually had a mini Olympics with about eight events, and he, he won every single event. The weightlifting, the tennis, the free throw shooting, you name it, he won it. Years later, Scott Chirowski would get his own Zip 6 at Eglin. In two years, Alex gets out of Eglin, and he has a slew of new contacts. Most importantly, a guy by the name of O.C. Davis, Ollie Carly Davis, who was a big-time pot smuggler. So Alex and Scott, they hook up with O.C. and his crew. And together, this bigger crew, they shift from ripping to smuggling, to importing. So they actually had taken the next step, and they run a lot of their action through the Bahamas. This was the early 80s, and by this time, all of the money and effort in Colombia had shifted to cocaine. So that meant that Alex and OC and their crew found themselves running that product. And they were doing it most by airdrops. Oh my God, when we do airdrops, that was incredible. This is David Lemieux, a friend of O.C.'s, who eventually became a close friend and partner of Alex's. You'd be sitting out there in boats. You'd have like three or four open fishermen, and you'd be uh, hanging in the Bahamas somewhere. And you'd have an aircraft radio where you could talk to the plane when it got within range. So you're sitting out there, everything's calm, you're fishing, you're just eating, maybe drinking a beer, and uh, all of a sudden this radio would start crackling, you know, and your hairs would stand up a little bit. Then you'd, he'd come on, and depending on who it was, he'd, uh, you know, just say, I'm 10 minutes out, or, you know, you on location? Yes, sir, bang, bang, bang. And all of a sudden, you'd spot them off in the distance. This twin-engine plane had come cruising at you, and depending on the pilot and how low they'd get, some of them were just nuts. They'd just be 50 feet off the deck. They'd drop the flaps, put the landing gear down. And uh, one of my Bahamian friends looks at me, and he's like, is this crazy guy going to land? I said, no, he's just slowing it down for us. All of a sudden, the side door had opened, and the packages had come flying out. You know, they're going like still 175 miles an hour. So they go flying through the air and hit the water. This huge explosion when they hit the water. And, you know, it was just, man, it was incredible. And then you'd go and pick them up. Hopefully there was no choppers or anybody following the plane. And that was it. It was pretty exciting. So in Miami at that time, there were a lot of Colombians running around looking for transportation specialists like Alex. These were guys who could take the load from the Bahamas and carry it over the goal line into South Florida. Well, in a pretty short amount of time, Alex and O.C. had built up the handling loads of about 600 kilos. With more cocaine coming into the market, the price was dropping. It was no longer $50,000 a kilo, but even at $40,000 a kilo, a 600-kilo load was worth about $24 million. So Alex was seeing his first serious money. And he spent it in some fun ways. And I think we can just say it outright here. Alex loved women. How available were women to oh. drug smugglers back then? <laughs> Bizarre. Yeah. You got a pocket full of money, cocaine if they like it. You know, so it was, you just had to beat them off. 
It was crazy back in the days. Uh, Alex and I would, you know, go out. You had a pocket full of money. You'd go to uh, adult clubs, you know, naked bars. And within 10 minutes, he had spread enough money around to have them all sitting at one table with us. All the other customers are, you know, like, what's going on here? And then, you know, we'd uh, pick the cream of the crop and, you know, slide them out the door. It was not a problem, you know, finding female companionship back in the day. That was David Lemieux. With all the money and the outlaw lifestyle, Alex became kind of super Alex version of himself. Yeah, but this was Miami in the 80s, man. I mean, it wasn't just Alex and his crew acting out and, and doing a lot of crazy stuff. Because this was before the federal government enacted new policies to attack the drug trade, what became known as the war on drugs. So things at this time were really free-flowing. These guys were surrounded by the trade. David Lemieux puts us there. It was just bizarre, and it just didn't seem, you know, that you were breaking laws. Miami lifestyle was just bizarre at the time. You know, you'd go to Tony Roma's or somewhere up North Miami, and, uh, you know, everybody was there. You know, it could be on a Wednesday afternoon, 1 o'clock. You know, you go in there, and there's 20 guys that uh, are all into business that are uh, drinking and uh, because they don't have to go to work. Do they? You know, they work when uh, when it's time to work, and that was it. You do the mission, and then you might not do anything for two or three months. Play golf, fish. Alex would call, uh, let's meet at Miami Gold. Go to Miami Gold, watch the dancers for a while, drink, might have a date. Live to the moment. It wasn't like you had plans for anything that day. You know, you just get up and do whatever you felt like. It'd be like being rich and, you know, not having to uh, do a nine-to-five. You know, you were just doing everything that you wanted to do. And when they turned the TV on, Alex could see himself. Miami Vice starts playing on NBC in 1984. Alex and I watched Miami Vice. We took some of the verbiage if there if there was something like a bad guy, we didn't if we didn't quite know what was going on, we'd be like, oh, maybe that was Calderon, because Calderon was the bad guy on Miami Vice. One of the episodes where there's a a DEA agent soliciting bribes, and that and that was almost the identical thing that a DEA agent had solicited a bribe from Alex, and then like six months later, the almost identical scene turns up a Miami Vice. They saw Scarface, too, of course. Here's Scott Schraus again. Right at the beginning of the movie, there's a scene where they're, they're trying to rip somebody off in the hotel room, and they pull out a chainsaw, and we start hitting each other. Because, like, it was that hotel, almost that exact room, we had tried to rip a guy off not long before that. And it was just, just unbelievable and, and kind of hysterical. You know, quite the coincidence. We never used a chainsaw. Okay, we might be able to laugh about that now. But back then, the violence of the drug trade, it was engulfing Miami. Well, one of the touchstone moments was 1979, a shootout at the Dadeland Mall. This sort of touchstone moment for Miami drug trade history. 
was a shootout at a liquor store. Yeah, and these sorts of hits and shootouts only continued. And when we interviewed General Guilaberte in, in Colombia, he's the former head of the Colombian National Police, he told us that this violence, it was really only reflection of the drug violence that had already overtaken Colombia as a whole. His, his point really was that the violence in Miami was simply an extension of the battles between the Colombian cartels. Only now that battle had encroached onto U.S. soil. Yeah, this was not something that was normal for America. So that convinced a lot of people in Miami who'd gotten into the trade in the early years that maybe it was time to retire. And Scott Strauss, Alex's old buddy, was just one of those guys. I decided to bail out of the whole operation. I wanted to retire, get away from all this. But in order to do that, it was going to take a substantial amount of cash. So on the next operation, I think I had 220 kilos, and I kept that. And it put Alex in a very difficult position. I mean, I, I called him. I said, you know, where are you? I said, no, I'm fine. I, uh, I have this, and now we can retire. And he was just like, no, we can't do that. These people are going to start killing people real quick. And it's, But we had gotten a little nonchalant to ripping people off because nobody had ever died. The Colombians I seemed hadn't really impressed me. So it was like, no, I am keeping it. My plan, you know, I split it with Alex. Now we have a few million dollars a piece. We can go flip houses and live happily ever after. The logic that these guys use is from another world. Well, they were they were really operating in their own universe. They were making up the rules as they went along, really. But not Alex. Alex seemed to have this code. He, he seemed to know how best to survive in this world that had no morals. And that was by adhering to a sort of thief's code. And now Alex was left holding the bag along with the rest of his crew. But Alex made up for that load. He worked off the value of it. And this is something that separated him from a lot of other guys in the business. His Colombian partners could trust Alex. And word got around, and eventually an important figure in Colombia hears about this crew in Miami that's getting the loads in, they're not losing anything in the water, and nothing is getting seized. Julio Caesar Nasser David. Remember, Nasser was the head of the North Coast Cartel, which was based in Barranquilla, Colombia. And he summons one of his lieutenants, Felix Chitiva. 1986, he proposed me to go to Miami and to meet Alex de Cubas. That was Felix Chitiva. And when Alex met him, he was one step away from the highest rung on the ladder. If Alex could make a connection with Julio Nasser, he would be able to tap directly into the supply. Thank you for listening to the SC Featured Podcast, Pin Kings. You can follow Pin Kings on Twitter at ESPN Pin Kings. That's at ESPN Pin Kings. A preview of the next episode follows this message. Next on Pin Kings, Episode 10, Bimini and Beyond. Nikki had achieved some level of stardom in the jello wrestling industry in Chicago. I said, we're down filming Miami Vice, you know, we're going to search. Yeah, search away. The guy has his own graveyard. Took me out to a hill and he's pointing at this and he's like, makes no issue out of having people killed. Don't miss an episode. You can listen and subscribe to the Pin Kings podcast in the ESPN app or download and listen on Apple Podcasts.